Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today's Thursday, February 8th. I'm Stephen Overly. Yoshua Bengio has been dubbed one of the godfathers of AI, but he's not thrilled about the title. Yoshua has devoted much of his professional life to the advancement of artificial intelligence, the constant pursuit of making the technology smarter. It's work that led him to share the 2018 Turing Award with two other leaders in the field, Jeffrey Hinton and Jan LeCun, an honor that's widely considered to be the Nobel Prize of Computing. Still, there's a reason Godfather of AI might no longer be the most comfortable fit. Yashua is still a computer science professor at the University of Montreal and scientific director at the Montreal Institute for Learning Algorithms. But his work is quite different now. Much of his research focuses on the possible threats AI poses to humanity and warning policymakers around the globe that they need to act now. That's what I wanted to talk to Yashua about on the show today. This abrupt professional pivot and the change he wants to see, including a digital army of good AI. Here's our conversation. Welcome to Politico Tech. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. You've been dubbed one of the godfathers of AI. How does one get that title? Uh, I'm not a big fan of this sort of uh, concentration of attention. I think that science progresses because of you know many people putting their ideas and building on each other's work. And I happen to be have been at the right time with a few good ideas, and it has had a lot of impact in terms of bean counting of uh, age index and citations. But really, there's a sort of general direction that would happen anyways because people are trying to build smarter machines and also take inspirations from the brain. And it's going to continue whoever the people are. Right. In fairness, you have devoted your professional life to the advancement of AI and machine learning. So I I I appreciate the modest answer. I think part of it, though, comes from your considerable research in this space. Does it feel in some ways like you've done a little bit of a 180 recently? Because it seems, you know, you've devoted so much of your life to pushing this forward. Now you're trying to slow it down. Tell me about that. Well, it's not as simple as that. So I'm pivoting to research that's targeted at safety. So in the past, like almost everyone else, I was focusing on how do we make AI smarter? And now I think that if we don't also make it safer, we are in big trouble. And so I'm focusing on the safer part. And of course, that's for my research, which is what I, you know, my day job. But because I also see that we can't deny the possibility of catastrophic outcomes if we don't face a number of major challenges, both scientific and political, I'm also speaking up about these issues so that more people take it seriously and we collectively end up doing the right thing. What has it felt like to make that pivot? How much of a change has that really been for you? Pretty significant. Uh, I would say this is something I wrote about in my blog. You know, there are psychological aspects here that maybe are not obvious uh, from the outside. If you have devoted your life to a particular mission, and then you realize that this mission could be highly destructive for society, democracy, humanity, whatever, depending on the scale you're looking at, um, it's hard. It's hard to accept the 
those possibilities, even though you don't find any scientific way of denying them, and then act accordingly, even though you go against your own community and you know people think, oh, this guy is talking about science fiction scenarios. But if you want to be honest with yourself, which is hard when your ego is at stake, you have to pivot. And that's what I did. And I know um, you're not a fan of this godfather of AI title, which I can appreciate. Does that in some ways put added pressure or feelings of responsibility on you now to focus on the safety component here? I think all the AI researchers should <laughs> should feel that should uh, be more responsible thinking what can go wrong. And what can go wrong is not the same thing as you know what we think is most likely to happen. This is a mistake that people make. For example, there are people who think the most likely trajectories are going to be good. There are people who think the most likely trajectories are going to be really bad for humanity. But if you want to be honest, and especially if you're sitting in, in you know, the chair of a politician who has to take decisions, you have to really accept that we don't know. Experts don't agree on what are the most likely trajectories. And the rational thing to do here, not knowing if some object that you're building could be extremely dangerous or extremely useful, or both, but you know it depends how you know it turns out and who uses it for what purpose, you have to be cautious. It's just like the sane thing to do. You mentioned politicians. You know, earlier this week, you testified in the Canadian House of Commons in support of legislation that is being talked about there in Canada. What exactly was your message to lawmakers there? There were several messages. Um, maybe the most important to consider, like less specific to the, the bill that's proposed, is the urgency. Um, the urgency of having guardrails and to do it in a way that is going to allow the regulator in the future to uh, be flexible and adaptive to the changes in the technology and the changes in how the technology can be misused or that we could lose control of it or whatever. It's very hard for now to write a law that will like envision all the possible bad things that can happen. So the right thing to do is to have a principles-based law that says, okay, we basically companies should not be building things that are potentially dangerous. And they should report to the government about you know, what they're doing to make sure their AI systems are going to be safe. And then the government could say, yeah, fine, or no, please go back to your homework, just like we do in every other field where technology can be dangerous, whether it's, you know, drugs, uh, airplanes, uh, uh, nuclear plants, you know. And the reason for the urgency is that it's going to take time for the this whole, like, uh, regulatory infrastructure to be actually put in place. For example, here in Canada, there is a 18 months, two years period of consultation before regulation can be even, like, effective. And so one of the things I asked is that the law includes things that can start right away. So uh, what was proposed by several scholars is to have a registry. In other words, companies building systems that are very powerful. So things like, you know, the in the Biden executive order, that 10 to the 26 flops, um, they need to report and say, okay, we're building this. Uh, this is how we're doing it. This is what we're doing for safety, right? Which is what, what the executive order was asking as well. But we should have that in the law. Because it can be effective right now, forcing companies to like document and divulge to the government what they're doing about safety. Well, that it does seem like governments are trying to strike that balance. You know, in the in the past, technology, from my perspective, having covered it, the balance tips very heavily in favor of innovation, as they'll say, right, or in favor of letting the technology play out. The conversation now at least feels a bit more balanced in that the risks are getting some recognition. It's 
to be seen whether that actually plays out in the actual laws that are written. I will say, though, you know, we are seeing some regulatory models emerge already. You know, the EU AI Act in Europe, for instance, as you mentioned, the the AI executive order here in the United States. Who is most getting it right right now? I would say the executive order is is the one that's getting it closer to what is needed. Of course, the only problem is it's only an executive order. It has to be turned into legislation to have some stability and sustainability. But in terms of what is being asked of those who build those AI systems, I think that that's the piece that's most uh, right on spot. No, that's the the main criticism I, I hear often as well as people feel it gets a lot right. But the, being an executive order, it's limited in its reach in terms of really just targeting the federal government. And then also, it's sort of susceptible to the winds of political change. There's another issue with the executive order compared to legislation, which is that the White House can't really spend. For example, I think that the scientific problem of finding out how we can design AI that's powerful and safe, which we don't know how to do right now. It's like no one knows how to do this. But that problem, it should be the, the main priority because it's all about humanity's survival. Uh, you know, it should at least get as much funding like, like the space program or something, you know, in, in the times when, when it was substantial. But that's, that's an investment in, in research towards this safety issue. That requires Congress, right? It's not something that the White House can do. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. You are the top signature on an open letter that a bunch of technologists penned calling for a six-month pause in AI development. That was back in March of 2023. We're now nearly a year later. No pause has happened, of course. Are you disappointed in any way with the fact that your peers did not heed that warning? No, because I was expecting that companies would not go with the pause. Okay. For very simple reasons. They are competing with each other. And unless they kind of all agree to do something, you know, I, I, I thought it was unlikely, but, but it, it did work. So I was not disappointed. I was elated by how much effect it had on the general discussion and the awareness in the public and governments and even the AI community about these dangers. Thinking to what you said about how you never necessarily expected a real pause to happen because these companies do compete with one another. I was going to ask you if a pause is something that should be discussed or pursued now. But if that's unrealistic, I I wonder what you think industry should be doing now or what our expectations should be of industry right now. So I think the strategy of a pause practically isn't really, I think, what's most likely to work for, for all kinds of reasons. I think if we want to get the same effect, it would be through legislation that requires companies to demonstrate with very strong scientific evidence that their systems will be safe. 
So that will have the same effect because right now we don't know how to do that. And so in effect, it would make a pause and it would also have a very positive impact, which is it would create a very strong incentive to for companies to do that research because they want to commercialize and make money and you know build those systems that are going to positively change the world if we can make them safe. So it's better than a pause because not only it forces stopping things that we don't know if they're safe enough. But it also creates this motivation for companies to invest massively in solving this problem. That's something that both governments and companies should be investing massively because of the importance for you know society and humanity to do that before we reach the AGI level. And when I was talking about urgency before, it's because we don't know when that's going to happen. That, that there are all these trajectories. It could be you know some people in those companies say, oh, it could be as little as two or three years. I think maybe they're optimistic, but it could be ten, it could be five, it could be twenty. My confidence interval is, well, anywhere from a few years to a couple of decades. And that's, that's pretty wide. The problem is it could be just a few years or even like even five or 10. And that scientific problem is not solved. You, know, you understand these issues from a technological perspective better than just about anybody, but certainly better than a lot of folks here in Washington. What should policymakers be compelling companies to disclose? Like what homework can they show that proves okay, these models are actually safe for public use? Well, I think it's not the role of government at this point, at least, to tell the companies, this is what you should test. This is how you should verify that your system is safe. Because we don't know the right way of doing this. And so it should be turning the tables around where the companies have a, you know, the burden, the, the duty to, to demonstrate in whatever way they want, but that is going to be scientifically verifiable by, you know, independent experts that their systems are safe. And we want to encourage them to explore uh, how can they make their system safe and what can they do to demonstrate to a rational, you know, expert that we should trust their thing. So, yeah, it shouldn't be something we put in the law, like how you verify that this is safe. Because we want R&D to happen. We want innovation to happen on the safety side. But the principle of you have to show that it's safe should be in the law. I read an interview that you gave last October with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which I, I have to admit is is not a publication I read regularly. Um, but it, it uh, was a fascinating interview. And an interesting comment you made was, how you try to understand kind of the failures of AI systems like ChatGPT, because those shortcomings essentially reveal how far we are from the scarier forms of AI, right? What have you found on that front? We know that the systems we currently have have some weaknesses. So for example, they can make blunders that involve complicated reasoning steps. They're not that great at reasoning, maybe not even better than a 12-year-old or something. The other thing is there is a particular way that we are training those systems that I think is very dangerous and doesn't get as much attention as it should. So the way we're training these systems is called reinforcement learning. And you, you know, to try to explain what reinforcement learning is, think about how you train your dog or your cat. You give it rewards when it behaves well, and maybe you punish it when it doesn't. And you have to like practice, you have to have it practice so it kind of understands what it has to do. In any case, there are several problems, but at the heart of it, what the animal understands about what you want is not the same as what you actually want. 
So, you know, if you, you're trying to train your cat or your dog to not get on the dining room table, it may understand that what it shouldn't do is get on the table when you're around and you see it. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, in, in that instance, animals also have some sort of motivation of their own often, right? You're yeah. rewarding them usually with some sort of treat. Um, is there anything comparable in AI? You know, what is the, what's the incentive for AI to learn the right thing? Yes. So the, the treat is the like computer signal that we use as the objective for, you know, when they're optimizing their behavior and those, those feedbacks that we're doing. That's the treat. It, it plays exactly the same role. But in addition to the, say the animal like cheating when you're not around, the other problem is now instead of a cat or a dog, imagine it's a grizzly bear more powerful than you. So you, you reward it with fish when it does the right thing. Well, what do you think is going to happen? You know, it wants the fish, so it's going to grab it from your hands. In the case of AI, that means it's going to take control of the computer in which the reward are coming, or it's going to take control of you so that you, you are going to be forced to give it good rewards, all of which are bad and dangerous and could spell the end of humanity if the AI is very powerful. So it is like the grizzly bear. We can't go with that procedure to train our AI. It's just too dangerous. We need to explore other ways of building AI systems that do what we want and don't turn against us. Well, with that in mind, actually, you know, another comment you made was floating this idea of a humanity defense organization, which I'll admit when I first read that, my mind kind of went to like a war of the worlds, rise of the machines, like science fiction place. I don't know that that's how you meant it necessarily. What did you mean with that idea? What I mean is that even if we are good with regulation and international treaties, somebody is going to do a mistake or somebody among the people who actually want to see humanity replaced by machines is going to give instructions to machines that, and so that, that make them want to fend from themselves, to have their own like self-preservation instinct. And then what we have in our hands, one way or the other, are AI systems that could be smarter than us and want to take control over the world because that's what's going to be best for their protection, just like the grizzly bear, right? And what can we do? Like, the only thing I can see that we could do, besides being you know stricter in our regulations and treaties and so on, is preparing for that event. And how could we prepare for that? Well, we need to solve the AI control and you know alignment problem and then build AIs that are going to be tamed, right? That you know we're going to train them in the right way and can defend us against AIs that are dangerous to us, right? So we need an AI defense organization. In other words, we need to solve that research problem, and then we can uh, use AI that's good to help protect against other AIs that, that are dangerous. Because if those uh, like rogue AIs are smarter than us, we're not going to be very good at defending ourselves. It's like children trying to defend against malicious adults. So we need some good adults on our side, now, I'm, I'm using all these images, but I think thinking of these AI systems as people is, 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 a, is, is, a, bad, is a bad meme, but, but it, helps, it helps to understand a bit what should be done. I talked to a lot of people for this podcast about AI risks and regulations. And if I were to simplify it, oftentimes it feels like there's two different camps, you know, the optimists and sort of the doomers. Where do you fall on that continuum? I don't think it is important how I feel about the probabilities of bad things or good things happening. What is important is that there is a risk and there are actions we can take now 
in order to move the needle towards a smaller risk. And ideally, we bring it to zero. I don't think that's possible. But that's how we should be thinking about uh, whether a particular person is more optimistic because of their character or... By the way, I've been optimistic all my life. It's just now I see those pieces of evidence, and I think we should be careful. Listen, Professor, thank you so much for joining us on Politico Tech. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our managing producer is Annie Reese, and our producer is Afra Abdullah. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. See you back here tomorrow.